Well, good morning, church. You can go ahead and get your Bibles out. We'll be in Psalm 118. Look at this, full service this morning. Uh, as you're turning there to Psalm 118, I'd like to take a personal moment this morning and say that uh, this is my five-year anniversary today. Don't be too excited, it's fine. And, and I say that not to brag on myself that I, I made it here five years, but I, I, I want to say thank you to you. Look, I mean, Mandy and I, my kids, we don't have family here. All of our family lives far away from here. And so everywhere the Lord calls us in the 18 years that we've been doing this together, uh, he gives us a church home. He gives us a people that become family to us. And so we're so thankful to our church family in the five years uh, of being here. And so in light of that, let's talk about what we really came here uh, to do today, which is to hear from God's word as we've already heard, uh, as we've sang it. As Mike brought a, a little mini sermon, and you didn't know you were going to get a twofer today, uh, but Mike uh, encouraging us this morning and leading us to prayer, I'm really thankful for him, thankful for that. Uh, but really, Psalm 118, it might be an interesting place for us to be this morning, and really, it, it came for me out of Holy Week. And so, back when we were in Holy Week, which I love the way we do it here, we have such a robust Holy Week with Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, uh, Easter services, and so as I was approaching Monday, Thursday, and I was reading the institution of the Lord's Supper, and you know, this is during the Passover, and so they're having this Passover meal together, which he says he's longed to have with them, and in the midst of it, he makes it like a Passover that there's never been. And because he says in the midst of this, hey, the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world, the sacrificial lamb that delivers you from the darkness, from your sins, that takes you out of exile into the promised land is me. It's all found in me. It's in Jesus. And so he gives the Passover new perspective and new light that the disciples would never forget. And not only would the disciples never forget, but when we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering that moment. We're remembering who the Lord is, that he is God come in the flesh, come to save us, come to deliver us from our sins, and to give us true freedom. And so they see this meal in a new light. And so as they came to the end of the meal, they would have sang two psalms. Two psalms that they would have sang are psalms of the Hillel, praise psalms. It would have been Psalm 117 and 118. And I was really struck by a verse in Mark at the end of the Lord's Supper, and it says this. Mark fourteen twenty six, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And as I was reading that, I've read this for years. And it's never really struck me to go, man, I wish we could know which psalm they sung. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool if we knew which song they sung before the, he goes out into the garden and literally sweats blood and tears over what he's about to go to the cross and do for us? Well, we can. So I did a little research, and some of you are like, hey, look, I already know this. You're way behind. Uh, but I had a great time going back and looking at Psalm 118, which would have been the last thing they sung before Jesus and them went into the garden. And as we look at this text today, I want us to look at it in the original context, but I also want us to look in the light of Jesus. If Jesus says the Passover is about me, that also means this psalm is about him. And really, let's be honest, all the scriptures point and talk to Jesus. I'm reminded of Luke 22, verse 27, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and they're talking about how they thought he was the Messiah, they hoped he was the one, but it didn't turn out the way they thought that it was going to. And here's what he says to them on the road, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. 
All the scriptures point and teach Jesus. Jesus is the climax of all the scriptures. And so today, as we look at Psalm 118, we're actually going to see the whole story of scripture in one psalm. And so I know that's ambitious to talk about today, but that's what we are going to do. And so let me give you a little background before we jump into this song. It is a communal psalm of thanksgiving and praise of great deliverance. It's a post-exilic psalm, so that means that this would have been written post-exile. So, you know, last summer we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah and how God uh, exiled his people and, and punished them for their rebellion and disobedience after hundreds of years of calling them to repentance. He finally uh, punishes them for their sins. Uh, and then ultimately, after 70 years of exile, he delivers them back to the promised land to rebuild, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, uh, to be renewed as the people of God, not just as a people, but as a spiritual people, as the people of God they were intended to be. And so this psalm is really marked probably around the rebuilding of the temple because we'll see towards the end of it, they start this procession towards the temple to worship God for who he is and what he's done in delivering them. And so that's really the thrust and the context of this psalm is a post-exilic psalm praising God for the deliverance from Babylon and that they would bring them back to the land and renew them in God's covenant people. So let's read the first four verses, and then we'll jump into uh, this psalm. It says this in Psalm 118, verse 1. These could be familiar words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever forever. So think about this in the context of the scripture, and they're beginning their praise and their thanksgiving by remembering that God is a God of covenant love who keeps his promises to his people, and that for that he is good. And that is something we need to realize when we come to the scriptures, that the whole story of the Bible is about the goodness and the steadfast love of the Lord. So my first point today, the whole scriptures point to the goodness and the steadfast love of the Lord for his people. Even in their rebellion, even in their brokenness, we have a God who is good, who sets his love on this rebellious people as he comes after them to make them his own, as he comes after them to save them from themselves, as he comes after them to deliver them and to show that life is found in him. That life's found in his goodness and in his steadfast love, and there can't be love and life found outside of him. So he comes, and think about the people as they are thinking about their time of exile, and now they're back in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. They're heading towards the temple to worship, and these are the words they start with. It's amazing words. And I think many times in our life, we can identify with where Israel's at, that we can identify that too many times in our life, we allow the circumstances of our life to color our picture of God. So instead of taking God at his word and believing that he's good, even when it's hard to believe that, we allow our life and circumstances to shape our view of God. And when we do that, we lose this picture that the Lord is good, we lose this picture of his steadfast love, and we forget that it endures forever. And so I don't know if you're like me, but I think early on in the pandemic, this is exactly where I was. 
struggling to understand my surroundings, struggling to understand my circumstances, to make sense of where we were at. And instead of going to the Lord who this is who he says he is, I started to let circumstances and things cloud my mind and cloud my heart. And so there was a book that I read right in the middle of the pandemic that I think the Lord brought to me. And I know it's encouraged a lot of people. It's actually called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. And I want to read a lengthy quote, but it will be on the screen for you. Uh, But this is one of those where you read the book and you just set it down and you're totally blown away by what it says. Great setup, right? Here we go. All right. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, The fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only rooted out over multiple exposure to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. Y'all, I read this and was like, whoa, Slam the book down, and immediately God's like, this is where you are. You have let circumstances in your life and the things that are happening cloud your mind about who I am. They are making your heart cold towards me and wanting to pursue other things because you've lost sight of who I am. Yes, things look crazy right now, and things are out of control, but what does my word say about who's in control? What does my word say about who I am at my deepest heart? And so Dane will go on, on in the book and point to Exodus 33, 18 through 23, and then 34, uh, Exodus 34, 5 through 6, where he says this. He's reminding us who the Lord is at his very heart for us, for his people. Uh, so here it is on the screen for you. Moses said, please show me your glory. So he's asking God to show him his glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim for you my name, the Lord. So he says, I'm gonna reveal to you who I am. I'm gonna show you what my name really means. And I will be gracious to who I'll be gracious and show mercy on who I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you should stand on the rock and while I pass Let my glory pass by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. Then verse Exodus 34, five through six. The Lord descends in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is who God is at the core of who he is, at the very heart of who he is. The Lord, the Lord a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Guys, we're not reading the Old Test- uh, New Testament right now. We're reading the Old Testament. Now, I hear this a lot. Man, I don't know about Old Testament God. Really love New Testament God and Jesus and who he proves to be. And when we say that, what we don't know what we're saying is, 
that God somehow changed or that God's somehow different. He's not. Look at this in the core of the Old Testament. In the rebellion of the people who are worshiping the golden calf at the moment that he's doing this. He says, this is who I am. The whole story of scripture points to this is who God is. Now again, a lot of us in the Old Testament can get hung up on what Dane also in his book talks about the strange work of God. He says the primary work of God is this. The primary work of God is that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But there is a point where he's also a God of justice. That he's a God of wrath against sin because he's a holy God. But that's his strange work. The heart of God goes out to his people in graciousness, in mercy, in forgiveness, in pursuit of a rebellious people to redeem them. And sometimes to go to those links, he has to lovingly discipline them and show them that they're they're going after other saviors rather than him. And that the Lord's discipline and his hand against them is not a hand to crush them, but a hand to pull them back. So let's not confuse who God is. He is consistent throughout all the scriptures that this is who he is. He has the heart of his primary work of redemption, but he also has a judgment and a justice and a pursuit of us and a discipline of us, but it's not punitive. It's a discipline to seek after us, to restore us, to almost crush us, but still give us hope. And that in the crushing It's not to hurt us or to harm us, it's to save us. I've been there. This is my life. (laughs) A lot of times I will think that I know the best way for my life and that I know the things that I should pursue and the ways I should go. And sometimes they're not always based on the Lord and who he is and what he's done. And the Lord and his loving kindness to me will pull me off that path. But because I'm stubborn and hard-headed and all these things, it, it, it hurts sometimes. But the Lord isn't hurting me because he doesn't care about me. He's, he, he's trying to draw me back to him and show me that he's better, that his promises are good, that he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. This is who our God is. This is who they're praising. And notice this, that their worship, their adoration of God starts with who he is and what he's done. You know, we came into worship today and I don't know where you came from or what you were thinking or what was going on in your life. Uh, But as we get into this room, God calls us to worship him. He calls us through the scriptures. He calls us through his spirit. And when we gather as the people of God, just like in this passage, I mean, look at two through four. There's a guy leading the call and then the people responding. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. So the whole nation, let the house of Aaron, the priest, the priest of God, let them say his steadfast love endures forever forever. Let all those who fear the name of the Lord. So even those Gentiles that have been grafted in or the sojourners and the people of God can say they have seen and experienced the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. I'm gonna do something a little hokey this morning, but I want you to also kind of wake up and, and keep tracking with me, okay? So I'm gonna say, let double oak say, and I want you to respond with the refrain, okay? Can we do this together? It's a little interactive time. Let double oak say, his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. This is where worship starts. 
This is where life with God starts by a right view of who he is and what he's done in, his, in our lives and how much he loves us and pursues us over so much time, even in our rebelliousness, even in our brokenness. Uh, if we keep reading, which we will, uh, we're going to read verses 5 through 13. It says this, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. So this is really a summary for the next few verses, okay? So that's the summary statement. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and he answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me and surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. And in the name of the Lord I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So in verse 5, we see that the, they're kind of reflecting on their time in exile, and it was out of this exile, out of this distress, that they called out to the Lord for salvation, for deliverance. They're reminded in their distress of who the Lord is. And notice that this deliverance and this freedom that the Lord sends them is out of an honest prayer. It's an honest prayer. A lot of time in our life, uh, when we find ourselves in hard situations and the things press in on us so much, we actually get really honest with ourselves sometimes. When things press in so hard, we can get to a point to where we start to see that we've been trusting in this or we've been trusting in that or we've been going this way or going that way and they're against the ways of the Lord. They're not the way he's designed us to be and we get to a point of distress. And in our distress, we finally turn to the Lord and say, deliver me, save me, help me. And so out of this honest prayer of his people calling out in their distress, the Lord hears their calls, answers them, and will take them out of exile. He'll set them free. And so as I was reading this, uh, I saw Spurgeon's commentary, and he said, a prayer which comes out of distress generally comes out of the heart, and they go straight to the heart of God. So my question is, in our distress, in things pressing around on us in our life, as God's working, and, it, and here's the deal. It's not always the enemy coming against us. It's not always the bad decisions that we've made. It's not always all these things. Sometimes because of the bad decisions or because following after the world, world or because we're doing these things, God's hand is the one pressing in on us. And as, again, his hand isn't pressing in on us to hurt us. It's to draw us out. It's to draw us back. So in the middle of our distress, in the middle of our situation, who are we crying out to? And not just who are we crying out to, but how honest are we going to be with God about where we're really at? Because he already knows. He already knows. He just wants us to come to him honest, come to him raw and real, and say, I'm not going the way that you want me to. I'm not following after you the way that I should. I'm seeing the real consequences of my sin and I need deliverance and then look at the Lord's response the Lord's response is he answers them 
and he brings them out of exile and he sets them free. As, as they go into verses 6 through 7, they're reflecting on the reality that even though their situation that's pressing in on them is hard, that the Lord is still on their side. Sometimes it takes a shaking up in our life or a distressful situation for us to be restored in our view of God, to be able to truly see him for who he is. So in the midst of their distress and calling out, they realize, hey, even though it looks bleak and tough right now, the Lord is on my side. Even though I'm in the middle of the things right now in my life that don't look great, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And they see at the point, not only is he on the side, but he is their helper. The Lord is their helper. Help, helper. And even though they're in exile of their enemies, they're going to be able to look at them and say, there's going to be triumph in our life over them eventually because the Lord is on our side. And then they have a kind of a, a, a time here in verses 8 through 9 where I think they're lamenting. I think this is a lament part of the psalm. Because I think we can read it and say they're making this huge declaration. And while they're making this declaration that's true about God, the reality is they haven't done this. In verses 8, they say, verse 8 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. I think when they're saying that, they're remembering we haven't done this. The Lord has offered us his refuge. The Lord's office, the promised land. The Lord has offered us himself and his love and his covenant steadfastness and we have rejected it because we wanted these things. Think back on Israel's history of trusting in man. Look at the book of Judges. So this is after they've, all the nations are driven out. They're in the promised land. They're set up. Things are great. And immediately, what's the resounding theme of Judges? The people did what was right in their own eyes. So the people, even though God delivered them, brings them out of Egypt, brings them out of the desert, brings them into the promised land, drives out all their enemies and gives them this promise and his goodness, immediately they say, thanks God, we'll take it from here. I don't know about you, I've never done that. Anybody else done that before? God, thanks for taking me this far. I've got it now, this is great. And then before we know it, we're doing whatever's right in our own eyes. And then, but guess what the Lord does in the midst of judges? What does he do? Send judges. He sends people to deliver his people time and time again. That's the whole book. The whole book is this cycle of sin where the people say, okay, uh, God, we got it now. Okay, and they start running their own plan. Then before they know it, they're in a bad situation. God brings a deliverer, you know, maybe pointing to Jesus, right? Yeah, these judges are types pointing to Jesus who they come and they deliver their people and they bring them back to him. And then they, as soon as they're brought back to him, what do they do again? Oh, we got it now. And then the cycle continues. I mean, we read it and we think that it's comical and we think that we're not them, but the reality is we're them. We're Israel, We're Israel who keeps doing things right in our own eyes and we trust in man rather than take refuge in the Lord. And then if we look at it, verse nine, it says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. Well, what did they do after the judges? Well, you get into Samuel and what do the people want? A king. They want a king to rule over them just like the other nations. Here's the problem. The Lord was supposed to be their king. The Lord was supposed to be their savior. They weren't supposed to be like the other nations. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But they say, nope, we don't want that, God. We want a man who can lead us and that we can follow just like all these other people. Well, how does that turn out for them? Guys, go read it. It's not good. 
right out the gate they get Saul. He's good looking, he's tall, he's strong. He's all these things that they want in a king. And he fails them. He fails to lead them in the ways of the Lord. And then, of course, on the backside of that, he raises up David, one of the greatest kings there is. But then, even in David's faithfulness, there is huge tragedy in going and doing whatever he wants. And so then there's this cycle in Israel's lights of a life of good kings, bad kings, being restored to God, being taken away from God. And then the whole time, the Lord's working in the midst of this, and he's trying to draw people's hearts back to him back to living their life founded on God and his steadfast love and his faithfulness and his promises. So then they get into verses 10 through 13 and there's this kind of refrain that starts happening in here and it's hard to tell in the English what's really happening because it says in the English version of mine, the ESV, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. But if you look at the Hebrew word there for cut them off, it's actually circumcise which is a real weird thing to say out loud, right? So he's, it was like him saying, all the nations surround me in the name of the Lord, circumcise them. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we look in parts of the Old Testament, of course, circumcision was the sign of God's people. But ultimately, what he says and what Paul says in the New Testament is we need a circumcision of the heart. That our hearts need to be circumcised and they need to be turned back to God and so in, the, in this moment when these nations have pressed in on them and taken them into exile and they're calling out in their desperate call, they are saying, I'm calling on the Lord to change the hearts of these nations. I'm calling on the Lord as even as these people press in on me on every side that he would change their hearts to not do this to us. I am calling on the name of the Lord to do what only God can do, which is bring deliverance and salvation. So in their point of desperation, they know they can't do it. They know they can't beat these nations. They know they haven't been faithful and taken refuge in the Lord. So what do they do? They call out to the Lord in desperation, save us. They call out to the Lord in desperation and say, change the hearts of these nations to let us go. Change the heart of these nations that are pressing in on us and oppressing us to be able to restore us back to you. And guess what God does? It's exactly what he does. If you remember back when we were studying Nehemiah uh, last summer, you know, it, that's what the Lord does. Nehemiah prays for six months before he goes to the king to ask to go back. And at that point, Ezra and them are already back and they're rebuilding the temple. And Nehemiah is going to go back to build the walls of the city. Uh, but here is the prayer of Nehemiah before he goes before the king. It'll be on the screen. Nehemiah 1, we're going to look at 111, 2.4, 2, and I think it's 2.8. It says this, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant for whom you delight and fears in your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he doesn't think that it's his awesome pitch, sales pitch that's gonna change the king's mind. He doesn't think that it's just his a wooing of him that's gonna change his mind. He says, no, Lord, I'm gonna need you to go before me. And as I say these words, you're gonna to have to circumcise his heart, change his heart. So when he gets before the king, the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So even in the moment before he says what he's gonna request, in his mind, he's praying before the God of heaven, give me success, change this man's heart. And then 2.8 says, and the king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of the Lord was upon me. 
The hand of the Lord was upon Nehemiah in his prayer. He heard his prayer. He changed the hearts of these kings to then send them back. Now, this might not sound like an amazing thing, but think about this. You've conquered these people who've been a thorn in your side forever. You've demolished their city. You've brought all the good people back, left all the bad people there. You pillaged everything from them, brought it to your city. They're they're done. They're gone. Why would you ever send them back to rebuild the city that's been a spur in your side? Why would you ever send them back to worship the Lord who you really know is in control? Only God can do that. Only God can change the hearts of these foreign kings to send his people back to be able to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, restore worship of God, and try to be that light to the world again. Only the Lord can do that. And he does that. He changes their hearts. And as we look at this part of the scripture, we got to start thinking about ourselves in this situation. Are we really honest with God about where we're at in our distressful situation? And we've tried other saviors. Let's be real honest. A lot of us will chase after other things to be our savior. We might not call them that. We might not think about it that way. But if we really sit there and think about it, we probably can start listing things in our life that become functional saviors for us other than Jesus. Um, You might be saying, okay, that's that's a new thought. Let me think about this. Um, You know, for some of us, it could be a spouse. We're putting so much pressure on our husband or our wife to be our identity, to tell me my worth and value, to show me that I'm worthy of something, to, to essentially save me and be my God. That's what we're asking them to do. They can't bear the weight of that because they're a broken sinner in need of God's grace just like we are. Your spouse can't complete you unlike Jerry Maguire says. But the Lord can. The Lord loves you too much to let your spouse be your God. The Lord loves you too much to let you chase after other things than him. And in his loving kindness, in his fatherly discipline, he will come after you to take away those lesser saviors. You know, Chris Culver talked about that a little bit last week. Um, Go back and listen. It was encouraging. The Lord loves us too much to let us find our children to be our God. We live in a time where, like when I was growing up, it revolved around my parents. In our time we're growing up, it's, it's revolving around our kids. And our kids, we want to give them the best. We want to make them well-rounded individuals who can do well in the world, who love the Lord and can go out and do what he's called them to do. But sometimes that becomes an ultimate thing and an idol in our life where we're just letting them be our God and we're running after wherever they want to go. And the Lord loves you too much to let your children be your God. Maybe some of us are hoping in government and change. The Lord loves you too much to let you think that that's where real change in life is going to come from. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're people of the kingdom of God. God's church, his kingdom, his people, that's what's going to bring real ultimate change. And whether it's in this life or the life to come, because the Lord is coming back. And the Lord, when he comes back, is going to make all things new. And we are going to get to dwell with him, with his people, in the new heavens, new earth forever. And that's going to be an amazing time. Where are we putting our hope? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a title. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's our retirement. Sometimes we can let things sit on the, heart, uh, the throne of our heart that aren't the Lord. 
And the Lord loves us way too much to let that happen. He did it to his own people. They were going after what they wanted to do. They were going after the kings. They were going after the ways of the world. And ultimately, in the rebellion, he punishes it. And his punishment isn't to destroy them, it's to draw them back. His punishment is to show them that there's something better. It's a loving, fatherly discipline pursuing them to call them back to himself. And so finally, in, the, in this part of the psalm, we see them turning the corner to see that the Lord is their strength and their salvation. Let's read uh, verses 14 through 18. The Lord is my strength and my song. He became my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So here's their experience on the other side of the exile. Here's their reflection that the Lord has brought them out and now he is their strength and their song. What did it take for the people to realize that the Lord is their strength and their song? It took them realizing they were weak and that they were marching to a different song. Will we embrace our weakness? Because like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in our weakness, he is strong. In our weakness and embracing that we need a savior, that we need deliverance from our sins, that we need a relationship with this God who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness that comes through Jesus Christ, we need this. That Jesus came as God in the flesh. That he is getting ready to literally, after they sing this song, go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and start praying for what he's about to do going to the cross. That in going to the cross, he goes as the one who was perfect, the one who's never been rebellious, the one who followed God to the T. He goes as the final sacrifice for sins, all the sins of the world, and that he will triumph over Satan's sin and death, and he will resurrect to new life, and that he is reigning and ruling right now in heaven, and that we can trust him. That we can trust in this God who is three in one, who is the God of steadfast love that endures forever. So they realize this. In our weakness, he has now become their song. Because here's the deal. In our strength, we become our song. We become the one that we boast in. We become the one we talk about. But in our weakness, we embrace the Lord and he becomes the one we boast about. He becomes the one that we sing about. And so he's given them a new song of salvation in their heart and it's a glad song, a song filled of righteousness, a song that realizes that the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This picture of the right hand of the Lord is a picture in the ancient Near East in social settings where they would extend the right hand for fellowship that they would do the giving and exchanging of goods through the right hand. And so what they're saying through this is that God's right hand has brought us peace and reconciliation with him. The Lord extends his hand to us because he wants to be in relationship with us. They go into verse 17 and 18 and they say, I shall not die but live. I'll recount the deeds of the Lord. So what they're doing in in doing the song of praise, they're going back through their history and it isn't pretty. That the story and the song they're singing for all the people that would have been gathered in Jerusalem at the Passover, when they're singing this Psalm 118, they're singing of the goodness of God, but they're also singing of their distress. They're singing of the faithfulness of their Lord, but they're also confessing their own need and sins. And in this 
confessing in this singing of Psalm 118, everyone who's gathered for the Passover is hearing the good deeds of the Lord. He, they are calling the nations that have gathered to praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. They're saying, hey, he might have disciplined us severely, but it, it wasn't to give us over to death, it was to give us over to life. And the same can be true for us. I, I think about for those of us who follow the Lord and have experienced his salvation, as we are living out our lives, are we recounting the deeds of the Lord and are we being honest with people about them? You know, we learn a lot more from our failures than our successes, don't we? If I just share my successes with people, my strengths with people, you know what they're gonna think? Clay's a pretty strong guy. Clay's a pretty good guy. Clay has it together. And again, we can praise God in our strengths. He's built us with great strengths and gifts to bless the world. We can, but oftentimes we don't praise God in the goodness. We don't praise him in our strengths or give notice to him. And then there's the other side of the coin, that even in our suffering, even in our duress, even in our stress, we can praise the Lord. That we can show a picture of the gospel to the world that is powerful, even in our suffering, even in our brokenness. To show that the Lord pursues people who have not pursued him. To show people that the Lord's steadfast love is the one that's drawing us and sustaining us. That even in whatever broken situation that you're experiencing, the Lord can redeem it. And I think that's one of the great compelling things about the gospel. I think that's one of the great compelling things about our God is that our suffering is not wasted. The Lord will redeem it in his timing and the Lord will use it to show who he is and what he can do in saving people to the world. So are we being honest with the world about our lives? Are we showing them all of our life and how the gospel can be on display, not just in our blessing, but in our brokenness? Because that's what Israel was doing in recounting this psalm to everyone gathered for the Passover. Let's read uh, verses 19 through the end. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate. Um, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I, th- I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we bless you from the house of the Lord, the Lord is our God and he has made, us, made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we see here that they are pointing towards their salvation. They are going towards the temple with praise. They are entering these righteous gates and they are coming through them. And the interesting thing here is they're talking about that the righteous shall enter through it. But I've just been talking about how these people have been unrighteous. I've just been talking about how these people have been in rebellion. How can they possibly enter the righteous gates of the Lord to worship him? They can do it because of the righteousness of our God who pursued them. They can do it because they were trusting in the promises of God. Go back to Abraham's story. What makes Abraham righteous? Because he did what the Lord told him to? 
No, there's times where he fails. It says that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Also, Paul says that in Romans. And so they are coming back to the Lord, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his promises, and they are trusting in the righteous God who can make them righteous. So as they come worshiping, they come with humble hearts. As they come worshiping, they come worshiping this God who has restored them and brought them redemption and salvation and righteousness. Well, that's what Jesus has come to do for us. We're the unrighteous. That on the cross, Jesus took our sins, and for those who trust in him, we receive his righteousness. We receive Jesus' righteous record. If you are in Christ right now, the Lord doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Think about that. If that's the way the Lord sees us, how would that change the way we would live? I could be pretty life-changing. That the Lord has given us his righteousness in Jesus Christ, and now we can enter into praise of him through his righteousness, not our own. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So they realize this, that it's his steadfast love that's redeeming them. He's the righteous one who's giving them his righteousness just the way the Lord did for us. And if you notice a phrase in here, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus quotes this psalm in Matthew 21, 42 through 43. He quotes it at the end of the parable of the tenants. And so he says this, he says, Jesus said to them, you, have you read the scriptures? <laughs> the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, given to a people producing its fruits. So in the parable of the tenants, here's what happens. Uh, The Lord says, hey, I've got this vineyard that I've planted. It's got a wine press. It's going to produce fruit. I'm going to put people in this tenants that I lease it out to. And then I'm going to come back when the fruit's ready. So he sends some servants to come and get the fruit of the vineyard. And guess what they do to these servants? Kill them. He's like, I'm going to send more servants. Maybe they didn't get the message. He sends more servants and they kill them too. He says, well, I will send my very son to them. Surely they'll listen to the heir. But then the people and the workers and the tenants say, hey, look, this is the heir. If we kill him, we can have all this. And then it gets to this point where Jesus says this. And then it says later that the Pharisees perceived that he was saying this against them. What he was saying is, I've sent you the judges. I've sent you the prophets. I've sent all these people on my name. And now Jesus is standing in front of them as the son who is saying, I've come to save you, yet you want to kill me. I've come to deliver you to a kingdom that's greater, except you want to settle for these things. And so he says that he will take it. And if you won't accept it, He'll take it to include not just Israel, not just God's people, but for anyone who would call on the name of Jesus. So question, are we going to build our life on the cornerstone that is Jesus, or are we going to start with another cornerstone? Are we going to receive and embrace Jesus, or are we going to reject him? And I'm not just saying this to people who might, not be, or might be an unbeliever in the room. I'm saying this to believers in the room. Because there is regular times we'll walk outside this room and say we believe in Jesus and we do here, but we forget to do it in our hearts and then we go out and we live like people who don't look like they know Jesus or believe him. Final point as the potastics come up, the whole story of the Bible leads us to life and blessings in Christ. If we look here at these last verses, it says, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Jesus. That the Lord is God and he's made his light to shine upon us. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the light of the world. We see the light of God shine the brightest through Jesus, especially through his life, death, and resurrection. And that leads to life for us. He's going out into the garden to then go to the cross, who would be the one in verse 27, the bound sacrifice that would bring us salvation. So that we can now say, verses 28 through 29, that you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. As they come and lead us, I want us to do just that. Based on seeing the whole story of scripture, God's loving pursuit of us, even in our rebelliousness, to then offer us life and salvation in his name, may we respond with the Lord being our song. May we respond to him out of who he is and what is done and that his love and steadfastness endures forever.